0: All right, let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege today to gather with the saints to be able to lift up our praises to you and sing about how amazing and awesome you are. We thank you, Lord, that you've gifted people with the ability um, to play instruments and to sing with their voices, to bless us, to help um, lead us before your throne. And we are privileged, God, to come before your throne today. You say it's a throne that we can approach with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. You are such a good God. We love you so much. Thank you for your word that we get to look at now. Help us to hear from you. Help us to hear from you, Lord. We pray you'd bless our time as we continue on. Amen. Okay, let's talk about um, Bible study for a moment. Why do we study the Scriptures? All right, to know God, to know truth, what else? I kind of heard it. What'd you say? Yeah, being equipped, good. What else? To change us, what else? To guide us? Okay, those are all good things. Uh, also, I'd actually include in there personal edification. I mean, are you edified when you read the scriptures? Right? So to know the triune God more, to know his commands, to know his will for us. I mean, right? We have his will. Here's the thing. We don't just read to read, right? We read to grow. And we don't just read to read. We read to know. And listen, we're, we're not just studying an ancient document. I mean, it's, it's an ancient document, right? 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 But that's not what, we're, we're not just studying the ancient document, we're studying the very words of God. And every single word that God wanted here is here. And all the words he didn't, they're not there. So he chose every single word. When we talk about uh, the Bible being inspired, and it's, it's, we believe it's inspired verbatim, like every single word. It's not just like his thoughts encapsulated. No, we think every single word is divinely inspired. And he put And spoke each word, divinely inspired men to write those words down and then have it preserved through centuries, some millennia, for us, right? For the church. Every single word. Every single word. One professor, he spent 42 years studying Eastern books. And he said, in comparing them with the Bible, pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone, and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science or religious thought. This is from a professor who studied Eastern religious texts as a career. As we're studying then, we're supposed to be studying, and that's what we're doing. We're looking at Colossians, and we're studying it. We're studying through it. What are we learning about Jesus, the second member of the Trinity? And what are we seeing so far? So just a brief review. One, we're seeing his self-existence. The fancy word is aseity. This is another term for God's independence. He does not need us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need the rest of creation. He is complete in and of himself. If he never created us, he'd still be complete in and of himself. If he never created us, he'd still be everything that he is. By creating us, it's not like he became more. He was always God, always is God, always will be God. So he doesn't need us. He is complete in and of himself. And he exists outside of all things. He relies on nothing and no one else for his existence. And in fact, as we've seen, he holds all things together. Everything and everyone, your existence, my existence, depends on Jesus holding it together. If he were to cease from holding it together for one split nanosecond, it'd all fall apart. Completely and entirely. Jesus holds it together by the power of his word. So he is self-existent. He's also eternal, verse 15. He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 17, he's before all things. Verse 18, he is the beginning. So he's before all things, and he created all things, so he existed before all created things. He is eternal. Only God can claim this, correct? He's also omnipotent. What does that mean? All-powerful. He created it, it all. Is there anything that he can't do? I mean, is there anything he can't do? Anything according to his holy will, he can do. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever trouble we're dealing with, whatever problem we have, like, he can see us through that. Every single time, every single step, every single problem, big or small, he promises to walk with us every single step of the way. He's also sovereign. He rules over it all. Verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. He's also the head of the body of the church. So he's sovereign. He is transcendent. He rules over all. But we also saw, just like last week, he's also very near to his creation. His eminence. Verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. God took on flesh. He took on flesh. He became, God became a man. He was still God, but he became a man. took on flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Why? To redeem a people for his own pleasure. So, we need to be sharp and we need to know our Bible. Look, keep your place in Colossians, but look briefly at 2 Timothy 2. Anyone um, ever do the Awana programs? Or have your kids do it? Alright, I did it for many years before I got saved. My aunt and uncle were very faithful to get me there to the Iwana program week after week. This is kind of like the Iwana verse, verse 15, 2 Timothy 2. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So do your best. The NAS says, Be diligent. So we want to make sure we're doing our best. And, and what, is the, what are we doing our best at? It says right at the end, rightly handling the word of truth. Are some people mishandling it? Yeah, left and right all over the place. Yeah. If you're studying your Bible, if you're practicing the biblical theology that we're wrapping up in our life groups and understanding the, the, the big picture of what God's been doing all the way from Genesis all the way through Revelation, that helps put everything else into the context that God is weaving a story He's weaving a story, and he's on a rescue mission for us. Listen, there's nothing nothing worse than trying to look like you know what you're talking about when it comes to the Word, and you really don't, because you end up looking like a fool. One pastor said this, many technologically sophisticated people today are also shockingly gullible and ignorant when it comes to theological understanding. Let me say that again. Many technologically sophisticated people today are also shockingly gullible and ignorant when it comes to theological understanding. Listen, just because you know your field, and I believe each one is called to a field of sorts, a field of study, you're called to a different field. Each one of us has fields that we're called to, and you should know your field extremely well. Whether it's in the home or outside the home, you should know your field. But just because you know your field of science or education or philosophy or therapy or computer science, that doesn't, that doesn't necessitate that you know the field of theology. Just because you know the field of science doesn't mean you know the field of education, right? Just because you know the field of philosophy doesn't mean you know the field of computer science. So I mean, again, just because you know a particular field doesn't mean you got the field of theology down. You can be greatly intelligent in one area but it doesn't make you greatly intelligent at all. That's why you can have people that score off the charts on the IQ tests, and they don't even know God. They don't even believe in God. Greatly intelligent. I, mean, I, I you know, when it comes to the sciences, especially biology, like, I stink at bi- biology. Okay, I, I kind of know where my heart is and where my brain is, and there's the vital organs in here somewhere. And after that, there's not much knowledge there, okay? I did not care for it ever since I was very young. I just did what I had to do to get the best grade I could. Being proficient in one area doesn't mean we're automatically proficient in another area. So one of the things I've learned, and I've had to learn this time and time again, like if we have ignorance in an area, don't act like we don't have it. And don't speak like, like you're not ignorant in that area. When you try to speak to an area where you're really ignorant in, you just... And there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. I know that's kind of an insult that we throw around sometimes. It just means we have a lack of knowledge in a particular thing. But when we, when we have ignorance in an area, and then we try to speak to it and act like we know what we're talking about, guess what happens? The people that do have knowledge in that area, you kind of look like a fool to them. And they're like, what is that person talking about? Listen, a lot of people, if you read between the lines, believe in a salvation... By education. What do I mean by that? My dad believed this for many years. There was a major emphasis growing up uh, by my dad on education and uh, before he got saved it was kind of like education could solve the world's woes. Um, It was very important to him uh, even to the point where he was appointed by the governor to serve on the State Board of Education in Missouri, meaning he um, was on a board that oversaw all the public schools in Missouri. It's no surprise that both his children have their doctorates. No surprise that I taught part-time as a teacher for over 20 years, and my sister was a teacher for over 15 and now is a principal. Parents, what you emphasize is what gets through to your kids. But my dad thought for many years if people were better educated, they'd make better decisions. That's not always the case. Because there's one little thing that, you, that education can't fully account for, and that's sin. Sin distorts. Sin, sin deceives. And sin breaks things up. Think about where has our education gotten our society? We're, we're probably the most educated society, if not one of the most educated societies. And we look like fools with how our society believes and how it acts. Education has and solves the world's woes. Education doesn't stop sin. Education doesn't stop immorality. So, I think at one point people thought, with all this transgender lunacy, the intelligent doctors and the hospital administrations, these people that have gone to years and years and years of school, certainly they'll put a stop to this craziness. But what have we seen? All the education in the world, and they'll still cut off healthy body parts of young teenagers. I mean, that's sick and demented. And more education is not the answer. They have almost as much as they possibly could get. What's the answer? Jesus. What's the answer? Salvation. What's the answer? Repentance. Even our own Washington University, as prestigious as a school as it is, has what's called the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital, and our attorney general is investigating it because of uh, crim- potential criminal misconduct done against minors. All sorts of awful things. More education is not the answer. Salvation is the answer. Repentance is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And we, when you don't acknowledge Christ as king, what happens? You subject yourself to a different master. And he's got a name. And it's Satan. And you're a part of his kingdom of darkness. And listen, the darkness of his kingdom clouds even the brightest of minds. I mean, the Department of Education, it doesn't even know what a boy or girl is. Why would we trust them with our science curriculum? So let me tell you this. Jesus is Lord of all. Amen. Acts ten thirty six. this is Peter. He says, as for the word that he sent to Israel, a preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So Jesus is the ruler of the world, and now we see back in Colossians in verse 18, he's the ruler or the head of the church. So he rules all, but he specifically is set over the church. He is the head of the church. What does this mean that Christ is the head of the church? Well, different definitions have been argued for what does the word head mean. And Wayne Grudem, we're actually using his book on Wednesdays at Reformation Wednesday. Uh, Wayne Grudem, theologian, professor, he investigated 2,336 instances in Greek literature over a 1,200-year period. 8th century B.C. to 4th century A.D., And he's like, fine, let's figure out what this word head means. And he found 2,336 instances in Greek literature. Now the vast majority just refer to literally the physical head, right? But when we say something as Jesus is the head of the church or even the husband is the head of the wife, what's the meaning there? The only other possible meaning besides the physical head that Dr. Grudem um, saw... Was that it has the sense of ruler or authority over? Ruler or authority over. So if it doesn't mean the literal head, it means rule or authority over. So what does this mean here for us with Jesus? Jesus is the head of the church. I mean, it means he is the ruler, he has authority over the church. So what does that mean for us? we submit to his rule. What he says goes. We are under his authority. We submit unto him everything, our entire being. He rules over us. It's not just as citizens of the state, that would be him being the firstborn of all creation, but now more specifically, he is over us as believers in the church. So he is, as it says in verse 18, the beginning. Imagine someone saying this. Imagine someone saying they're the beginning. These statements can't be made by a mere man. He was at the beginning. In the beginning, John 1, was the Word. He is the beginning and the end. Listen to Revelation 21. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And just one chapter later, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. All these point to the supremacy of Christ, that he truly is the ruler of all. Then further on in, in verse 18, we find out that he's the firstborn from the dead, which is kind of compares and points back to him being the firstborn of all creation, but this is the firstborn from the dead. Now, different people were raised from the dead before Jesus was including Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son. But again, that idea of firstborn means he's the preeminent one. Christ being firstborn of the old creation indicates his rule over that creation. So now being firstborn from the dead indicates his rule over the new creation. And what's the new creation? I mean, we're the new creation, right? We are the new creation, and a new heaven and a new earth is coming. So he's not just king over this earth, he's king over the earth to come. Not just king over the heavens now, but he's king over the heavens to come. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul in Corinthians in 15 is making an argument for the resurrection. He starts out, we're going to start out in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He is tying here very directly the resurrection of Christ with the fact that we too will be resurrected. So he's saying, verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found even to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God, about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then notice what he says in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. If you believe Christ has been raised from the dead, then you can have just as much confidence that you too will one day be raised again to life. Your body, your physical body, will be raised to newness of life. Listen, Christ should be first in everything. Every square inch of this world is Christ, and he owns it all, he rules it all, and he reigns over it all. This is true in the church as well. He rules over the church, he owns the church, he reigns over the church. So then the question is for us, will we submit to him? Because whatever we do must reflect his headship over us. I mean, we can say that we're of Christ, and we can say that we're believers, and we can, we can profess that Christ is head over the church, but is it apparent in our own lives? That's the question we have to ask. Is it apparent that we're submitting unto him, that he's the head, that he's the ruler, that he has all the authority, and we submit unto him? The rulers of this earth have tried time and time and time again to stamp out Christ and his followers. And look around, brothers and sisters. They're still failing. Voltaire, the French writer and philosopher, he said that in 100 years from his time, he lived in the 1700s, 100 years from his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. Well, guess what? Voltaire has passed into history. And the Bible lives on. And only 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible um, Society used his um, press and his house to produce stacks of Bibles. Isn't that irony? Why is Christ being the head <clears throat> so important for us to cover and discuss? One, because it wasn't always believed that way, even in the church. Some of you might have heard of the pre-Reformation reformer, John Huss. He, w- he was born to, to poor uh, parents in Husnick in the late 1300s. So he was kind of like Uh, one of the early Reformers, but really before the Reformers. And at the age of 20, he shortened his name. So um, he was from Husnick, he just shortened it to Hus, uh, which actually means goose, and the name kind of stuck. So he was a bright guy that ended up getting his bachelor's degree, his master's degree, his doctorate. He ended up becoming the preacher uh, at the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague that seated 3,000 people. That's a lot of people for back then. And he determined to preach in the language of the people because he wanted the people to understand. Regardless of their education, he wanted them to be able to understand. And when he preached, he actually discussed the Bible. Eventually, he was forbidden to preach. And he was excommunicated, but they couldn't get him out of the pulpit, so he just kept preaching. (laughs) The longer he preached, the more heavily he leaned on the Bible, which he proclaimed as the final authority, which did not make Rome so happy. The Catholic Church finally passed an edict that no citizen could receive Holy Communion or be buried on church grounds as long as Hus kept preaching. So to spare the people, he stopped. He ended up going to the countryside where he taught and wrote just abundantly one tract that he wrote was called simply The Church. It was read in public in Prague, and it contained, at the time, radical views. One being that Christ was the head of the church, not the pope. That did not go over so well. And for it, they burned him at the stake. And so that phrase, his goose is cooked, many people think, traces back to Hus being burned at the stake. So he argued that Christ alone is the head of the church. He, he, I quote, who through ignorance and love of money is corrupt, talking about the Pope. And he said to rebel against the Pope is to obey Christ as head. So firmly did it stick that Martin Luther himself refers to Huss's martyrdom as the goose being cooked. His executioners were so desirous of ridding the earth of every bit once he was actually burned that they scooped up the ashes and the dirt around it and tossed it in the river. Those who revered him, however, collected bits of dirt on the spot and <clears throat> took it back to where he came from for a memorial. Well, the, where he came from, the, uh, he was uh, of, of the Bohemian people, and they were furious over his execution. They repudiated the council, they repudiated the church, and ended up um, basically starting their own sect or church, which became known as the Moravians. And if you know about the Moravians, they've done some amazing work. For then to proclaim Jesus as the head of the church. It wasn't popular in Jesus' time, it wasn't popular in the apostles' time, it's not popular in our time now. Listen, with headship comes authority. And with headship comes rule. And with headship comes power. We want to be independent creatures apart from anything or anyone. That's our fallen bent. That's our natural bent. We want to be the master of our ship. We can only have one master. What did Jesus say? You can't have two masters. We got one master. Sometimes we try to make ourselves the master. And we want to call the shots. Well, we can't be the master and have Jesus be the master. There's one master. You can't serve God and try to make him the master and then serve anything else. Those are idols. Idols that we fashion in our own heart and our own mind. There is one master. What's our motto been for the year? Okay, I heard you kind of murmuring it. All of Christ for all of life. Listen, I said it last month. I'll say it again. There's this really easy idea that some people overcomplicate. Jesus says it. We believe it. Jesus commands it. We do it. That's what headship looks like. We're submitting unto the headship of Christ. He says it, and we believe it. He is a good and a gracious head. He looks out for us. He lays his life down for us. Why, does he, why do we believe it? Why do we do it? Because we have a new identity. We have a new identity. And sometimes what happens is, is we find our identity in our idols. Or we find our identity in things that bring satisfaction. If we find our identity in anything else than Jesus Christ as the foundation of our identity, we're going to be disappointed. And we will look to different idols and whatever might satisfy us and it will end up taking the place of who Christ is in our life. We must knock down those idols. We have changed our citizenship. What does Philippians say? Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And listen, our king has a task for us to do he has a task for us to do it's kingdom work it might vary by individual but it's kingdom work for each of us to do and where should every single person clearly see that Jesus is the head of the church right here in the church right in the church in the worship in the sermon in the people in us you know, does, our, does our attentiveness or lack of to the sermon, does that display Christ is the head of the church? Does our participation in the worship, does that proclaim that Christ is the head of the church? Is our ministry, whether it's on Sundays or other days of the week, ministry in the church, does that proclaim that Christ is the head of the church? Is, we're like walking, you know, We're under him. And so we're either saying to the rest of the world and to our brothers and sisters that either Christ is the head or he's not the head. So we should be able to observe believers' lives. We should be able to observe one another's lives. And it should be really clear that we're walking as if Christ is the head of us. Of us, you know, we're like a little tiny church. A hundred little churches here, right? Because we're the temple. The Holy Spirit's living inside us those that claim Christ and do the contrary, those that claim Christ and live differently than according to his dictates, what happens? They lead many astray. And they do so in his name. Millstones are in their future. Heavy ones. So what are we doing? What we are doing is we are spreading the fragrance of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Did you see that? What what does God do through Christ? He leads us in the triumphal procession. Not in the failure procession, not in the messed up procession. No, it's a triumphal procession. And what is he doing? He is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But notice what it says, through us. Through us, he's doing that. Through us. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Each one of us, we're an aroma. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? I mean, notice, it's not our fragrance, right? Like, if if we were the fragrance, we'd be that cheap old cologne sold on the bottom shelf at Walmart. Okay? Some of you buy that. I apologize, guys. It's all right. That's not that fragrance. It's Christ's fragrance. I mean, it's a beautiful aroma. For some, for some it is. The one, a fragrance from death to death, from one to fragrance, from life to life. Some people see that, they smell it, so to speak, and they are attracted to it. Others, they see it, and they're repelled by it. Just because someone's repelled by you, if they're going to be repelled by you, make sure it's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because you're a jerk, not because you're rude. But if they're being repelled, and some will be, it's because of the gospel. It's the fragrance, and they don't like that fragrance. They're repelled by it. Make sure it's because of Jesus and the gospel, though. Some people, you know, they're left and right and offending people everywhere. And, and it's because they're doing that in the flesh. And then they're, you know, patting themselves on the back because, look, all these people I'm repelling because I'm the, the fragrance. No, if they're going to be repulsed and repelled, Let's be because we're preaching the gospel out of love, truth and compassion, mercy and grace. And if you're repelling everyone and no one's attracted, then you probably got the wrong fragrance, okay? Just think about it. So we're spreading the fragrance. Listen, God has been gracious in our country. Months ago, he struck down Roe v. Wade. Amen. Amen. Uh, a pro-choice organization did some research and um, concluded there's been 5,000 fewer abortions a month since Roe v. Wade was overturned in America. 5,000. That's a lot. Still more work to do. Another analysis um, showed that states that instituted post row abortion bans saw a 96% drop in the average number of abortions per month in those states before Rose overturned. 96%. Those states include Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and our very own Missouri. And all glory to God, right? We need about 35 more states on that list. We pray to that end, we work to that end. We're the fragrance. People should see that Christ is our head, clearly in every walk of our life whether it's in the home whether it's at work whether it's right here at church whether it's at a Lowe's buying some nails whether it's Walmart or Snooks or Deerberg's buying some food they should see it they should see it open your mouth to make sure they know it they might tell there's a difference but they got to hear it faith comes from what hearing. Okay, faith comes from hearing, not from seeing. That seeing might give you the the opportunity. It might open the door, but they got to hear. Okay, faith comes from hearing. They have to hear the gospel. They have to hear the gospel. So we want to be faithful. We want to make sure that in all aspects of our life, Christ is the head. That means we have to walk in humility. It means we have to walk in humility. Every single one of us There's not a person here that couldn't use a little more humility. Maybe some of you a, a healthy dose. Here's the thing. Last week, I asked for people that needed prayer to come down front. One person did. Now, you're telling me out of however many people were here last week, let's just say 80 or 85, only one person needed prayer. Only one person was willing to humble themselves to come in front of everyone. Can you guys name me in the past ten years, um, all the people that have come down front for prayer? Probably not. You shouldn't. Who cares, right? Because they've come, and they they humbled themselves, and they asked for prayer, and it's not like anyone's making a list about it. Two weeks from now, no one's going to remember. But you do have to humble yourself and come and ask for prayer. There's no shame in that. Is there, should there be shame with our brothers and sisters if we need some help? Do you believe God answers prayer? Yes. Yes, he does. I heard this story not too long ago. A young missionary, he comes in from the Ecuadorian jungle. He's desperately ill. And the doctor says, he'll be dead by morning. So his wife uh, takes her wedding dress and dyes it black, so it'd be ready for the funeral. in the, in the tropics, you can't wait for days for funerals. <clears throat> Thousands of miles away in Boston, his friend, the Doctor Joseph Evans, interrupts a prayer meeting and says, "I feel we must pray for Ray in Ecuador." And they're praying, and they're praying, and they're, all the while he's just he's on his literally on his deathbed, and they're praying, and they he didn't know, he didn't know what was going on. But the Lord spoke to him. He's like, "We need to pray." And finally, Doctor Evans calls out, "Praise the Lord! The victory is won." He didn't even really know what he was talking about, but he was right. Ray ended up recovering. His wife's dress did not. <laughs> but Ray went on to become the president of Wheaton College and minister there for 40 years. Right? The Lord hears the prayers of his people. So we might be missing out if we're not asking for prayer. In fact, we are missing out if we're not asking for prayer. There is humility there, but we could all use a dose of it. Listen, Jesus is our head, and he knows exactly what we need. Every single day, every single hour, every single minute. He knows us inside out, backwards and forwards. He knows exactly what we need, exactly what we need to hear, exactly what truth needs to be applied to us that particular moment, day, hour. And so when he applies it, we have to receive it. We have to receive it. I mean, sometimes the Lord can be speaking to us like, sometimes days, weeks, months, and we're not receiving it. So we have to receive it. And 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 receiving it is part of us acknowledging. that's. I mean, that shows that we're acknowledging that Jesus is the head. That he's the head of the church. Receiving the truths that he gives to us. Applying them and then walking it out. Jesus will never wrong you he'll never hurt you he'll never forsake you will he discipline you yes will he allow or even bring suffering into your life absolutely think about think about the new testament i mean they're going through all sorts of hardships i mean was the apostle paul was he ever like lord i'm i'm the apostle paul I'm writing like half the books of the New Testament. Help me out a little. No, I mean, he has that list in Corinthians where he like, lists all the things. You know, I've shipwrecked for days, beaten with the 39 stripes. I mean, the list goes on and on. And that's our hero of the faith? Yes, it is. Because he endured to the end. He knew that God's hand even in the toughest of times, is still a merciful hand. And he knew whatever he had to go through, God would see him through to the end. And the same is true for us. Whatever we have to go through, whatever the Lord brings or allows, he will see us through to the end. Shipwreck, famine, whatever it might be. God was faithful to the Apostle Paul, he will be faithful to us. You think um, you think Paul is any more elevated in status and regards- to in regards to being a child of God? I mean, seriously. We're children. We're children. Did he have the office of apostle? Yes. Are there prophets? Back in the Old Testament, you think they have an elevated status in heaven more than us? They fulfilled the obligation and the role and the job that God gave them to do. Your title doesn't matter, except for one. Child. Child. And we're all children of God. And at the foot of the cross, as you've heard before, the ground is level. It's a level ground. No one is any more elevated or less. We are children of God. Blessed to be part of his kingdom. Blessed to be adopted into the family of God. Yes, and are there blessings and giftings in different levels in regards to heaven, I believe so. But I believe that some of you will be quite highly up there. They said that <clears throat> I believe I, I might I'll paraphrase this story, but I think it was uh it was George Whitfield was they were asking about uh Wesley, uh John Wesley, and he's like, Do you think that he'll be in heaven? They, were, you know, they kinda had some different theo- disagreements theologically. And um he's like I don't think I'll see him there. And everyone kind of gasped. And like, he's going to be so close to the throne of God, I'm not sure I'll even be able to see him. Wow! Talk about knowing your, you know, your brother in Christ and still loving him. That needs to be our heart as well. We serve a good and gracious and merciful God. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our head, a good and gracious and loving head that rules over us, that has authority over us. We submit unto you completely and entirely. Forgive us when we don't. There's been many times we haven't, Lord. Continue to have mercy and grace on us. Continue to be long-suffering. Continue to be patient with us. We very much need it. We thank you for your blood that you poured out for us. It truly is precious. It covers our sins. It washes them away. We thank you for your sacrifice. and Lord, I pray for anyone here who, who might not know you, who might not have you as their head. They're, they're not a part of your kingdom. You'd be gracious to save them. Be gracious to give them the gift of faith to trust in you. Be gracious to draw them to you. Let them see you for who you really are their Savior, their King. Continue on, Lord, before us, and may we seek you and follow you every single step of the way. We love you. Amen.